0: Welcome to the First United Methodist Church. We hope our sermon broadcast will bless you.
1: Because it happened in an unexpected way. Listen for how people didn't recognize him at first. It took sitting down at the table for people to realize that Christ was with them still. Every time we gather around a table, we can recognize that Christ is with us. Inside each one of us, Every time we love each other by sharing food, a meal, together. Let us pray. Repeat after me. Holy and surprising God, Holy and surprising God. We, gather in your name, we gather in your name, invited by Jesus, invited by Jesus. Bound, together with your spirit, bound together with your spirit, in union with each other. Feed our bodies and our spirits with your comforting presence. So that we might be your comfort to others.
0: To others. Go ahead. So here's how the story of Jesus' surprise visit on the road to Emmaus and at the dinner in Emmaus, how it all happened. Imagine yourself walking down the road and a stranger comes along. And this is from Luke, the 24th chapter, and I'm reading from the, um, from the message. That same day, two of them were walking to the village of Maas, about seven miles out of Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation, going over all these things that had happened in the middle of their talk and questions. Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were not able to recognize who he was. He asked, what's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? They just stood there, long face, like they had lost their best friend. Then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened during the last few days? He said, well, what's happened? They said, the things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene, he was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, blessed by both God and all the people. Then our high priests and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death, and crucified him, and we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. And it is now the third day since it happened, but now some of our women have completely confused us. Early this morning they were at the tomb and couldn't find his body. They came back with the story that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our friends went off to the tomb to check and found it empty, just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. Then he said to them, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen? That the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. They came to the edge of the village "'Where they were headed. "'He acted as if he were going on, but they pressed him. "Stand, and have supper with us. "'It's nearly evening. The day is done.' "'So he went in with them, and here's what happened. "'He sat down at the table with them. "'Taking the bread, he blessed and broke and gave it to them. "'At that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, "'they recognized him, and then he disappeared.' Back and forth they talked. Didn't we feel on fire as he conversed with us on the road, as he opened up the scriptures for us? (laughs) They didn't waste a minute. They were up, and on their way back to Jerusalem, they found the eleven and their friends gathered together, talking away. It's really happened. The master has been raised up. Simon saw him. Then the two went over everything that happened on the road, and had they recognized him when he broke the bread. I skipped a line, by the way. There was a line after verse 32 that says, A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone. They knew this wasn't a ghost. Thank you, Kurt.
1: There's a scene near the end of the film, Terms of Endearment, where the character played by Sally Fields is leaving the graveside funeral of her adult daughter, Shelby. Walking down the path with her closest friends, she stops near a big tree and finally releases the torrent of emotion that has been overwhelming her. In a matter of mere seconds, she expresses raging anger, laughter, and, of course, a flood of tears and anguish. For me, it remains the most powerful scene in the entire film because it reflects grief so powerfully. And in the course of that scene, in the midst of all that emotion, she makes a powerful statement that is almost universally spoken by people in a time of crisis or great loss. I don't know what to do. Implicit in her simple statement, there are also some other different questions Difficult questions. What am I supposed to do now? Where do I turn? Where do I go? Where do I go from here? Anyone who has faced tragedy in life, anyone who's experienced devastation, anyone who knows loss, knows what it's like to ask that question, to ponder it. And most not only know what it means to ask the question, but also know what it feels like not to, To find an answer. It's a question asked tens of thousands, perhaps millions of times a day. It's asked by the 50-year-old man with 20 years' service to one company who suddenly finds himself the victim of downsizing. It's asked by the 38-year-old mother of three whose police officer husband has been killed in the line of duty It's asked by the 15-year-old girl who's just confirmed her worst fear, that she is pregnant. It's asked by the 70-year-old woman whose husband of 50 years has died and left the house deafeningly silent. It's asked by cancer patients and their loved ones, the victims of rape and abuse and racism and other humane cruelties. It's howled by the parents of children killed in school shootings. And I have no doubt, in Sudan today, millions are wondering, what do we do now? And at times, I'm sure each of us has asked one of these types of questions. The painful reasons that raise the question are as uniquely and personally varied as the people in this sanctuary. Some, like those I have mentioned, can be proud profoundly painful, others less so. Yet the question is always a variation on what do I do? Where do we go from here? Or what do I do now? As I read the text from Luke this, for this Sunday, it struck me that this is very likely the same question that gave birth to the discussion that Cleopas and his daughter were having as they traveled the road to their home in Emmaus. And let me just note, it's not the Bible that says the other person was Cleopas' daughter. That idea is Walter Wengerin's literary proposal. Who it was exactly, frankly, isn't known, and neither is it all that important to the story. What's important is the action and the dialogue, and it is the action that first caught my attention. Do you remember the first time you got hurt out in the world away from home as a child, most likely, maybe as a teen. Maybe it happened on the park playground or at a friend's house. What did you do? I'm sure there were times before the one that I remember. In fact, I can think of another one right now, but I won't add it. <laughs> but the one sticks, that sticks out with me happened when I was in kindergarten or first grade. I had fallen from the very top of the monkey bars had the wind knocked out of me, as they say, had cried and was, well, not feeling so good. Where did I want to go? Home. Home. And the teachers, in their wisdom, let me do exactly that. I only lived a block away from the school, but I can remember that long walk, feeling all alone and hurt and confused, But once I was home, back in the waiting arms of my mother, who I'm sure the school had called to let me know I was coming home, things got better. Well, that's exactly what Cleopas and his daughter were doing. It was Sunday morning, which is like Monday morning to you and me. The Sabbath was over. Things in Jerusalem would be going back to normal business. Of course, it wasn't normal business at all for the disciples of Jesus, They were still in the grips of grief and despair and fear and asking the same questions we ask when things go sideways. Where do we go from here? Now what? They had thought Jesus was the one, but now the Sabbath was over and he was dead and buried, and the Roman and Jewish authorities were watching for followers of his to harass. Cleopas and his daughter headed for a safe place. And where they went was the same place any hurt child goes. They were going home, a place where hope can be restored. And as they walked together, they talked, which is the second thing we can do when trouble comes and we wonder what we do and where we go next. They talked about the disappointment, the lost dreams, the shattered hopes, the fear of the future. But it's in the midst of this conversation that Jesus comes to them and walks with them. Perhaps it was their pain that blinded them to his presence. Perhaps, as one commentator suggested, it was the tears in their swollen eyes. Whatever the reason, though, like Mary at the tomb, they failed to recognize him initially. What are you talking about, he asks Cleopas. Cleopas is stunned, incredulous. What are we talking about? What do you think we're talking about? Are you just visiting from another land or something? Are you the only one who doesn't know about the things that have happened to Jerusalem in the past few days? What things, Jesus asks. So they tell Jesus the whole story. Not just the story of the crucifixion, but the story of the birth of their faith, how they had started following Jesus, how they had grown to love and place their faith in him, how they had been there on that glorious Palm Sunday to witness his glorious entry into Jerusalem and at the cleansing of the temple and at the healings and the teachings he had conducted during the week, how they had come to believe and hope that he was the one, the promised Messiah And then how their dreams, their faith, their hope had been shattered on Good Friday. Crucified right along with him. And now it was all over. And they were doing the only thing they could think of to do. Doing it almost on automatic pilot. They were going back home. And Jesus said, but wait a minute. Don't you think you've missed something? Take another look. It's a dramatic turn of the tables. At the beginning of their encounter, he's the one who appeared foolish, not knowing what had happened. But then suddenly they were the ones who appeared foolish, ignorant. Don't you know he said that this is exactly what the scriptures say had to happen? And then beginning with Moses and then the prophets, he walked them through the passages that tell of the Messiah and how he had to suffer before entering into his glory. And he revealed to them how their hopes and dreams had been uninformed and misguided. And perhaps that's one of the lessons of this scripture. Sometimes when we are disappointed in life, it's because our dreams and our hopes have been uninformed and misguided. Sometimes we place our faith in the wrong things. Cleopas and the disciples, despite Jesus' constant efforts to show and teach them otherwise, had placed their hopes in the idea that Jesus entered Jerusalem to take over, to throw out the corrupt religious leaders and the occupying forces of Rome and usher in a kingdom. They were hoping he was the one who would ascend the throne of David and usher in a glorious new age of peace and prosperity, but their hopes were uninformed. And we too at times in our lives put our hope in the wrong things, the wrong dreams, the wrong people. Sometimes our hope is uninformed. Sometimes it's unrealistic. Sometimes it's woefully misplaced. And that can be cause for a great deal of pain and grief. Gloria and her husband Glenn lived in one of the posh sections of the Los Angeles suburbs. The wealth Glenn had inherited from his family enabled him and Gloria to live in luxury, which both of them enjoyed as much as anything in their lives. Glenn died of a stroke in his early 50s. And after Gloria had mourned for a decent length of time, she was determined to make their house one of the best in the city's upsc- of the city's upscale homes. Her late husband's wealth continued to fuel her dreams, and she used much of it to complete her dream home. It's my life, she would declare to visitors who came to see her and her house. It's everything I ever dreamed of, she repeated over and over to a succession of friends and an increasing number of people who just stopped by because they were curious about her place. And then not too far from her mansion lived Stan and Betty, an older couple whom Gloria and her late husband had known years ago. They lived in a modest three-bedroom home, which was comfortable but not pretentious. Since they were both now retired, they spent some of their time making minor repairs and touching up the paint job from time to time, but their house was not all they lived for. It was a dwelling, and it kept them safe from the elements. That was how they viewed their house. That basic difference in their viewpoints became obvious when tragic fires hit the hills of Los Angeles. The fires started in several locations, some probably from natural causes, others perhaps intentionally set. In any case, the great fires wreaked havoc on a large number of people in the hills of suburban Los Angeles. When the brush fires, fueled by high winds, found their way to Gloria's house, she was on a brief trip away, but she heard about the fires before returning home. The news put the fires in her neighborhood. She said, if I hear the fires have destroyed my house, that will be the end of me. There's nothing left, nothing She cried uncontrollably for a few moments and then repeated, I have nothing to live for if my house is gone, nothing at all. Meanwhile, Stan and Betty were told by the authorities that they had to evacuate immediately because the fires would soon engulf their neighborhood. After they had moved to a safe area, they watched the fires slowly eat away their house after the ones before it. They were silent as the flames licked their house and, in a short time, reduced their home and possessions to ashes. They held hands, said nothing for a moment, and then finally Stan said, It was only a house. It wasn't going to last forever, was it, honey? Betty said softly, It served us well while it lasted. And she paused and then added, "'We've got some things that are far more lasting "'than a house anyway. "'We've got each other.' She paused again for a moment and then finished, "'and we've got our faith in God. "'Fires can't take those things away, can they?' "'Stan replied. "'There were a few tears in their eyes. "'Stan squeezed her hand ever so lightly. "'Did you hear the difference?' It's stark. Gloria's dreams and hopes were all tied up in a house. Stan and Betty may have dreamed of growing old together and playing with their grandchildren in their house, but their ultimate hope wasn't tied to that structure. Their ultimate hope was tied to God. In First Peter we read, Not in your house, not in your expectations for the fulfillment of a particular dream, not in the things that are perishable, but in God and God alone. This is not to say that we shouldn't have dreams or plans or hopes for the future of our lives, but it's simply to say those things should never be our ultimate hope. Because if they are our ultimate hope, where do we go when they're dashed or stolen or destroyed Gloria didn't have a clue about where she would go if her house was gone. Stan and Betty not only had a clue, they also knew that their real life was not in the things of the world. Where do we go when life has other plans than we did? Where do we go when we're disappointed and hurt and confused? We go home, but not back to a physical home made with hands. We go home to God. We go back to our ultimate source of life and love and hope and security. We talk and pray, sharing our pain and anguish with one another. We listen for the still small voice in the midst of the storm. We trust in Jesus to be with us and show us the way. Just as he did on that road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his daughter. In the midst of it all, Jesus will always be present with us. Resurrecting our hope, resurrecting our faith, resurrecting our lives, resurrecting the love of Jesus Christ that is always within us because he is risen. And because he is risen, our hope is alive, our hearts alive, our spirits alive. And we have a living shepherd, a living Messiah who dwells within our hearts And that love is in us so that we might share it with the world. Where do we go when disaster confronts? We come home. We come home to the one who loves us more than any other in the entire universe. We come home to the God we meet in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Thanks be to God.